Have you noticed, for those of you who pay attention, have you noticed how the meanings of words change, right? Uh, take the word awful, for example. It, it used to mean worthy of awe, right, back in a couple hundred years ago. Uh, sometimes in older theology books, you'll actually read a phrase like the awful presence of God. You're like, what? Awful presence of God. But you kind of have to know it had a different meaning at the time. It's, it's kind of the equivalent of our word awesome now that we would use. Um, it's in, but in reference to, to those types of things. The word nice actually originally meant silly or foolish. Um, and silly originally meant something that was blessed. Right? That's crazy. I mean, they, they literally flip-flopped. And flirt or flirting used to mean uh, uh, something like flicking, what we would flick. If you flirted or fl- flicked, flirt, flick, they could interchangeable. Weird, right? I don't know how those, I don't know how flirt became to mean what it meant. I didn't bother looking it up. Meat originally meant any solid food, that, anything not liquid that you would consume. Hence the term meat and drink, Right? Uh, fear is another word that's changed meanings in a sense over the years because we're told in Scripture to fear God, but how we define fear today is much narrower than the original meaning um, because are, are we being told to be afraid of God, scared of God? Well, in a, in a small sense, yes, that, that's in there. It's included in that meaning, but it's much more it's much broader than being afraid or, or fear in the sense which means there's a reverence and respect and an awfulness, right, to go back to the original meaning, of uh, uh, awe-inspiring connotation to fear that we rarely use when we use fear in our everyday language. Uh, and how does this happen? I mean, how do, how do words change meanings? Entomologists, they list multiple reasons. There's a lot of reasons they change. And yet, sometimes you have to look at the specific words and you can literally go back to the thing that caused them to change. Uh, it could have been uh, the way it was used in a f- popular book. Uh, colloquial, uh, regional colloquialisms will cause things to change. Um, just uh, slang, it, uh, a term can become a slang term. Uh, right now, uh, you, oh, that's sick, right? Well, it doesn't mean that it's it needs healing, it can mean that it's, you know, oh, that's really cool, right? And, and cool, there's another one right there. See, words, the meanings change. That's how it happens right there. You just saw it happen. Because it's usually gradual, but it's not always gradual. And, and we can see it happen in our own time. In fact, there's sometimes specific cultural battles will cause the meanings of words to change. Uh, you, you can see that right now in a lot of our political culture and some of these buzzwords that, that happen to pop up. Um, but I'll, I'll give you another word. Consider the word discipline, right? If I, give you, if I gave you no time of contemplation and I just said the statement, the parent disciplined the child, you'll probably think that child was punished, right? That's usually the first place our mind goes. But discipline and punishment are actually not synonyms. Over time, discipline has taken on a negative connotation, negative definition that it was never originally intended to have, and it's become equated with punishment, when in reality, discipline by definition is always positive. By definition, but that doesn't mean when we hear it, we don't feel something a certain way, because we grew up as kids being disciplined, right? And it was punishment to us. 
And that's one of the ways you can see these things of words changing. There's another word also that's begun to change meanings based on various factors from culture, and that is the word submission. And that's what we're going to look at today. The entire concept of submission gets a bad rap because outside of the Christian context, submission means that there's a winner and a loser. However, today I want us to focus on biblical submission from Ephesians 5.21. Mutual submission from Scripture and how do we how does that affect how we live as Christians interacting with one another? So turn to Ephesians 5 if you haven't already turned there. Paul, Paul tells us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ or fear of Christ, depending on your translation. And it's important to remember that this is tied directly to being filled with the Spirit. So I, I want us to, I, I've done, I did this a couple of weeks ago, but I think it's super important that I, that I mention it again. I want us to do a quick overview of Paul's structure of Ephesians 5. Beginning in verse 15 where he says, look carefully then how you walk. All the way down to verse 9 of chapter 6, ending with the sections on servants and masters. So you've got 5, 15, all the way down to 6, 9. That is actually one long thought. Right? I know it's broken up into verses and chapters, but Paul is addressing one long thought here. There is, a, there is sort of a break at verse 22, but not a clean break. It's more of a subcategory. And the reason I wanted to point this out is because in verse 21, as, as well as 22 through 6-9, Paul is addressing what it means, what it looks like, what are the results of being filled with the Spirit. And in verse 18, we have two imperatives we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Do not get drunk with wine. Be filled with the Spirit. And in 19 through 21, Paul lists these results. Being filled with the Spirit is speaking psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody, giving thanks to God, and then submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. We see these as the four results of being filled with the Spirit. But what's biblical submission? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does that mean? What's this, this, how are we going to submit to one another? Because as we move through the rest of Ephesians 5, tied to wives and husbands and children and parents and slaves and masters and those things, we need to have a good working definition of the concept of submission. We're going to get super confused, right? So how are you going to submit to one another what does that look like? I mean, it, at the surface, it comes across, it seems like an oxymoron, right? Like it's not even possible. Because submission's a funny thing. The discussion about mutual submission is actually quite controversial. It really is. It's one of the most debated topics among academic theologians. But in reality, like the word discipline, submission is a good thing. It's something we gladly, willingly practice every day in our lives. We, when we drive, we submit to the rules of the road, right? Why? Because you don't want to die or you don't want to get a ticket. We submit by paying our taxes for the same reasons. We submit to the laws of physics. For example, you don't jump off a tall bridge because you know Hey, there's a law of physics. I'm going to submit to that. I'm going to, stand, I'm going to stay on the bridge. We submit to government laws. We submit to bosses. And you know, we, don't actually, we do these things, and we don't actually ever think that much of it unless something goes wrong. 
That, that's when all of a sudden submission's an issue, when something goes wrong. But when something goes wrong, it's rarely an issue with submission. It's actually an issue with authority. And honestly, the controversy surrounding submission, even the text on wives submitting to their own husbands that we're going to look at next week, isn't a struggle with submission. It's a struggle with authority. And for us to really understand biblical submission, I think we're first going to have to look at biblical authority. And what, and what does that even mean? Because by definition, submission requires authority. God, God has ordered the world. He's a God of order and, and structure. And we have this structure of authority and submission. And much like a lot of the cultural arguments that are directly tied to an effort to upend this structure... Some for the good, when, when authority is out of control, and then some for the worse, when it's really nothing more than just rebellion against the order, against the authority. And for any organization to function, whether it's a church or a home or a business or a school or a military, or even four friends playing basketball in the backyard, there's going to be some form of submission and authority. And, and so let's, let's take a journey through Scripture and look at God-ordained authority in order to understand the broader context of this issue of mutual submission. Now, there are, there are dozens, more than dozens of scriptures we could look at, but for the sake of time, I've just selected a few. But the first thing we need to understand about authority is that all authority comes from God. Romans 13.1 states that every person is in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. So anytime that we choose to rebel against authority, we need to make sure that we are not in turn rebelling against God. I spent a lot of my younger life struggling with authority, right? It was why I was a terrible student. In school, it had nothing to do with my intellect. It had everything to do with my attitude. I just didn't like being told what to do. Right? And if I didn't respect you, then I was not going to do what you told me to do. No matter who put you in charge. Right? That was an issue with me. Right? Not an issue with them. My issue was with authority. I still don't like being told what to do, by the way. All right. Now, there are times when we can rebel against authority. There are times, right? Like Peter and John in Acts 4, um, when, they, when, they, uh, when, they told that when they had been told to stop preaching the gospel, they'd been told twice to stop preaching the gospel, they got caught again, and they were like, hey, look, we don't answer to you, we answer to God. Right? There are times. Um, but... During those times, it's during those times when, when the authority that we're submitting to is directly going directly against God's law, but God still establishes authorities. And when we fight against these authorities, we're really only harming ourselves and we're in rebellion against God's order for our own lives. And those in authority that abuse that authority, those who have been given authority and abuse it, they're in rebellion against God because they assume that this authority is theirs by right. Anybody who's abusing their authority has a warped view of where their authority comes from. It's like a king claiming he can do anything he wants because he's king. He's sovereign. You know, I can do it. It's right because I'm a king no matter what it is. 
And we end up with these, the history of these brutal dictators and kings who slaughtered their own people and said they were doing it righteously because they were in charge. And in reality, the king answers to God just like the, the lowest guy on the totem pole answers to God. No person on earth trumps God's law. And any authority that anyone has is given to them by God, and it's not their authority, whether that's the church, the home, the government, or that backyard basketball game. God establishes all authorities. The second thing we need to understand is that God ordained authority exists for our blessing and our protection. For the, not just for NBC and not even just for believers, but for everyone. Matthew 5.45, you'll be familiar with this passage. It says, For he makes the sun rise on evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, this verse basically tells us that, that there are blessings from God that everyone on earth reaps the benefits of. It rains on the unbelieving farmer, just like it rains on the Christian farmer. When the sun comes up in the morning, it warms up the world for everybody, not just those who are seen as righteous before God through Christ, right? Rains on the just and the unjust. This is a concept called common grace. The, uh, uh, um, read, read it this morning uh, in Psalm 145 says, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And the structure of authority isn't just for the church. It's how the world was created. Even biologists will tell you that at the very basic uh, species, there's a structural hierarchy that orders the species, the, the, whatever society they live in, from flatworms to lobsters to chimps to humans. No matter how far you go back, when they study it, they can see this order of authority. And for humanity, this authority exists to make our lives easier. It's part of God ordering the world. It, and it, it points us, one of the things it does is it points us to a higher authority. And, and God, God, and this is one of the ways that it reigns on the just and the unjust. And we see the benefits of a good authority in something like our American system of government. Even, even, in it, even when it's bad, it's still good, pretty good. Um, uh, and because ultimately, even though you may not agree with how they're going about it, for the most part, what our politicians are attempting to do is make society better for the country as a whole, right? The big disagreement is how, how do you accomplish that? But that's the goal. But you also see it in the results of bad governments like North Korea, who's been in all over the news the last few years. When they imprison and starve citizens and they abuse their authority as some sort of sovereign demigod or, or, or a guy like Pol Pot or Joseph Stalin or, or Mao Zedong who, who slaughtered millions of their own people. God-ordained authority exists for our benefit and protection when it's working properly. Third, and, and this is where we really see Paul's instruction here in a, from Ephesians 5.21 and really all through the book of Ephesians, but Christ is the ultimate authority. He's actually over all authority. Matthew 28, 18 says, Christ says that all authority has been given to him. Ephesians 1, 21, he is above all authority and rule and power and dominion in this age and the age to come. 
In Colossians 2.10 says Christ is the head of all rule and authority. And in 1 Corinthians 15.24, he will destroy every earthly authority, including death. So when Paul tells us in, in Ephesians 5.21 to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, he is direct, directing us to appeal to the ultimate authority, and that's Jesus Christ, who was the greatest example of biblical submission. And, and the one with the greatest authority to practice the greatest submission, and that was the cross. Now, let's talk about biblical submission. Right? We've established what authority is from Scripture. Uh, for there to be submission, there has to be an authority to submit to. But it's important that we don't think of submission as losing or as lesser than. That's, that's a warped definition that's actually driven by a modern concept of humanism that, that, that pushes this sense of individual autonomy. It's, and it's very humanistic in its nature. And, and North American mindset is dominated by this individual, these individualistic assumptions. And in particular, it assumes that you, in your own internal world, based on your own private instincts, have all you need to decide what is good, both in the world and yourself. And in this way of thinking, no one should presume to tell me what's good for my body, my relationships, or my vision of how I want to live my life, right? And we've all heard that, and in a sense, we've all said that and done that. And the issue of mutual submission is not a battle between those who have authority and those who don't. Submission and authority is actually about a relationship and how that relationship functions. And in 521, when he says mutual submission, he's telling us how we function together as a body of NBC. But we need to understand just how we have mutual submission and authority at the same time because those two things do seem to contradict themselves. So... I thought about it a lot this week, and I was trying to think, without going into multiple examples, what's one Christian relationship that when it's functioning properly, you can see this mutual submission concept at its best. Now, marriage is the ideal example to go to, but we're going to do that next week, so I had to come up with a different one, right? Um, and actually, I think a good example of that is, is uh, the relationship between church leaders and the congregation, in Hebrews 13, 17, the writer is giving instruction to the believers, and he tells them, Obey your leaders and to submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And then 1 Timothy 5.17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now, we see here how the body should respond to leaders. There's a sense of submission here that's, that's actually pretty clear. Um, but if you're submitting to church leaders, how is it mutual? Well, this is actually where the, the concept of servant leadership comes into play. Which to the world, again, seems like a contradiction. Servant leadership, how is that possible? Church leaders are to serve the body. Again, to the world, it, it, it conflicts. But this is how 
a person in leadership, how is a person in leadership a servant? It's this way. It's actually found in the same three passages. Those in leadership have a responsibility to serve the body by one, Hebrews, keeping watch over your souls, ruling well, 1 Timothy, laboring for the people in 1 Thessalonians. Because submission doesn't start when the decision is made. It begins long before that. And in the church, members must submit to the elders gladly embracing their leadership because submission is, is a God-ordained authority that doesn't come and go. It's, it's the very essence of the Christian faith and discipleship and practice. And when we repent and believe, we do, no, do nothing other than confess to a holy God, you're right, I'm wrong, I submit to you. And what happens in our Christian lives when we consider authority and submission is that Christ changes our understanding of authority. And it's not authority over something. It's an authority for others. And this is literally what Paul meant when he told us at the beginning of Ephesians 5 that we were to be self-giving. And in the sense, the same way that the congregation will respect the authority of the leaders that have been placed in your lives, the same is done from the leaders to you and the fact that our goal is not just to lead you, but to serve you. And this is the contradiction that servant leadership that's taught in Scripture. And if you tell the average person that the Bible says Christians are to submit to one another, they will tell you that's impossible. Because most of our submission that we're okay with is actually, all that list I gave you about don't jump off a bridge and don't get a ticket and all those things, those are actually all tied to self-preservation. We don't argue with our boss because we don't want to be fired. We stay in traffic because we don't want to die. We submit to paying our taxes because we don't want our wages garnished or go to jail. And when we rebel against authority, it's actually also usually tied to self-preservation. But biblical submission is different than that. And the unique thing about a church leader is that we actually only, only can lead by people submitting to God-ordained authority. And in a sense, we can only lead by the permission of the people because you could throw us out tomorrow or just not show up next Sunday. And if we ever abuse our authority of serving you as a body, throw us out tomorrow or don't show up next Sunday. And you can see this weird spiritual submission of mutual submission between the congregation and the leadership because and to the world that seems odd and it seems impossible but it can only happen because it's a work of the spirit of God and when we are filled with the spirit that is how mutual submission happens and that's how we can have this strange exchange between the leadership and the congregation of servant leadership and respecting the authority and us all functioning together for the sake of the kingdom that's the entire dynamic of the relationship between the congregation and the leadership is one of mutual submission. But I actually think the best, even better than marriage. Marriage is a good one. Marriage is one we can all understand. But I think the best example of mutual, mutual submission is actually submission within the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one substance in three persons, Perfect 
perfectly equal in power and will and authority, yet Christ submitted his will to the will of the Father. And the Holy Spirit was sent by the Son and submits to the will of the Father as well. It says, and because in Philippians 2.8, it, it talks about Christ and it says, being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And we know the, the famous prayer uh, from Luke, from the Gospels, where Jesus said, if, uh, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Our ultimate example of seeing this concept of mutual submission is in, in Christ, in the Trinity. In, in, in Mark 10, tur- actually turn to Mark 10. I want you to see this. Mark 10, 42 through 45. James and John requested to, to when Christ comes into his kingdom, they want, they want to sit one in his right hand, right hand and one in his left. Right? And the other disciples get really upset, and I assume they probably got upset because they didn't think of it first. And, um, but they're upset, and they're like, why would you ask Jesus that? And in Mark 10, 42, Jesus answers James and John. This is what he says. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man cannot, came not to, serve, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Now Jesus repeatedly makes the same point in other passages when he said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And if you remember all the way back at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 5, Paul calls us to imitate God who, and walk in love like Christ who gave himself up for us. And what Christ is saying here in the Matthew passage is that I have a will, I am God. But there was a mission that was greater than what I wanted, and that mission was the redemption of the people. And the Father sent me, and I'm carrying this burden. But I've given up my burden and my desire to have my burden removed in his humanity to say to the I'm, I'm following the Father's will. And we, we don't function in the life of a church as individuals. In fact, most problems arise in the church, most disagreements, most strife, most division happens when we forget that church is not about me. It's about us. And it's about the kingdom of God. And it's, it's an attitude that inhabits the example of Jesus who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and suffered death on the cross. And this is the self-giving that we're called to as Christians that we talked about several weeks ago at the beginning of Ephesians 5. In the same way that Christ gave himself up for us, we give ourselves for others. And Paul expressed the same thought in Romans 12, 10 when he said, honor 
in honor, preferring one another. And there, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a, a very, very clear point in this Ephesians passage that I want, you to, I, I want you to hear. In this sense of being filled with the Spirit, the Spirit-filled life is not judged by our private morality or our private spirituality, but how we interact with those around us. Think about that. The spirit-filled life is not judged by our private morality or our private spirituality, but how we interact with those around us. We judge so much of our spirituality based on what we do, generally, how early we get up, how long we read our Bible, how much we pray, how much we do this list of things. That's how we judge our spirituality. But Paul said, no, in Ephesians 5, 17 through 21, if you're filled with the Spirit, here's what you're going to do. You're going to, what? What's the first thing? We speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Are you filled with the Spirit? Do you speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? Do you sing and make melody in your heart to God? Are you thankful? Are you submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ? Paul says the results of the Spirit filled life are seen in how we interact with others. That's where you see your spirituality, how we treat others. And then the final point, really, in this issue of biblical submission, and I think this is going to be a key for us to really understand it, is this concept of mutual submission is not a conversation about equality or rights. At this moment in our culture, there's a lot of conversation about rights. I mean, everybody wants a right to whatever, right? And they turn it into a right because if it's a right, you can't take it away, right? That's what, that's what they keep telling us. Oh, it's my right. I have a right not to be offended. Well, I have a right to offend. Uh, you know, I have a right to free health care. Well, I have a right to not pay for your free health care, right? I mean, I have, a right to, to, I have a right to my body, my choice, murder my baby. What about the rights of the unborn, all right? These are the conversations that happen. And we could go on and on and on and on with these. I mean, really could. But the current political conversation about rights fails at the same point. Because this conversation about rights politically isn't a conversation about what's best for the country as a whole. It's a best for what's, what's best for me as an individual. And honestly, that's kind of part of the founding of America, right? Bootstrap mentality. Um, but mutual submission that Paul is talking about in Ephesians 5.21 is grounded on the functioning of the body. And in the same way that a person who's in the military doesn't fight for themselves, they fight for their country or an ideal. And that's why people got so upset about the flag because people died for the flag. But they didn't mean they literally physically died for the flag. They, they died for the ideal of American freedom and those types of things. And all the good and bad that comes with that. And when submission becomes a conversation, submission in the church becomes a conversation about rights or equality or winners and losers, we have completely missed the point of what's being taught here in Ephesians 5 and really about the entire concept of a Christian body of believers. 
Because submission is not weakness. Submission is strength. Submission is not subjection. Biblical submission is victory. And in Christianity, submission doesn't lower, it actually elevates. And as Christian, we give up our individual rights for the sake of the kingdom of God and the spread of the gospel. And we gladly surrender our rights in response to the purposes and the actions of God out of reverence for Christ. Not just because it's the right thing to do or because it's good for society or it's good for the church, but because Christ submitted himself and we are to imitate God. He gave himself for others and we're to imitate what Christ did in being self-giving and being forgiving. And this submission, it actually begins at salvation, but not, not just in regeneration or sanctification. Actually, repentance is submission. For us to repent, we have to submit that our own morality is wrong and that God is right. And we submit and say, God, we're sinners. And we submit our selfishness and, and we concede that God's way is better than whatever way we think we've got worked out in our own mind. And we submit our will to his will by recognizing him as Lord and walking in obedience. And then we walk in love and we walk in light and we walk in wisdom as part of the body. Not focusing on us or our part, but focusing on the whole. And the only one who can submit themselves to the fear of Christ is the person who has been filled with the Spirit. Because the person who is filled with the Spirit is a person who shows and displays the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, kindness, patience, those things. And if you, that's, that's how you know if you're filled with the Spirit. So where are you with this teaching on submission, mutual submission? Does the whole concept of submission cause you to struggle internally? I've spent several weeks looking at this. I actually bought myself some time last week by doing that sermon on music before I could get to this sermon. <laughs> and because I, I, I told Danny this morning, I feel like I understand the concept. I'm just not convinced I can explain it. Because I, I have my own internal struggle with it. And I talked with some others this week, and I said, when I say submission, what do, you, what, do you, what do you think it means? How does it make you feel? And they were pretty much the same thing. I don't like it, right? <laughs> but remember, that this issue of mutual submission, this isn't a command. This is a result of those who are filled with the Spirit. Those who are filled with the Spirit do this willingly, and it's part of the process of the Holy Spirit operating within us. And Martin Lloyd-Jones said that if a man is full of these characteristics, there will be no difficulty with him. There will be no trouble. He will be the sort of man who submits himself ready, willing, voluntarily, always for the sake of others and for the good of the whole cause. The man who can do this is a man who is showing the fruit of the Spirit because he's filled with the Spirit. And if you find it difficult or impossible to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ... It's probably an indication that you're not filled with the Spirit. It may, not, it may not be an indication that you're not a believer. Because that's baptism of the Spirit, remember? They're different. 
But the whole cause of this mutual submission, the whole purpose of mutual submission is the redemption of unbelievers, reconciling others to God. And we as a church are a people who are going, if we're going to fulfill our role as ambassadors for Christ, if we're going to reflect the character of God to a lost world, we must strive to be filled with the Spirit. Because as Jesus said, by this men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And our ultimate example of this submission is Jesus Christ who submitted himself and went to the cross for us. Jesus, who had all authority, submitted himself willingly for others. And in in Isaiah, we get a glimpse of the example of what Christ did. It said, he, meaning Jesus, never sinned nor ever deceived anyone. He did not retaliate when he was insulted nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we could be dead to sin and live for what is right by his wounds we were healed. Once you like sheep have wandered away, but now you have turned to your shepherd, the guardian of your souls. Christ who never sinned. He didn't struggle with this. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. And we submit ourselves to one another because this is about more than me. And it's about more as you as individuals. It's about the kingdom of God and what are we as a church going to do to reflect the character of God. And when we are filled with the Spirit, you'll see it in the four things listed in Ephesians. And you'll do it willingly and you'll do it out of joy, Right? And if you're struggling with this issue of submission, mutual submission, or if you're struggling with any of the other four, the making melody in your heart, or being thankful, or, or, or speaking to another one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, I challenge you this morning to reflect. Reflect on yourself. Is it a sin issue? Is it an issue of understanding? Multiple, multiple things could be going on. But I know if we're filled with the Spirit... As a church, we're going to be a people that work in mutual submission. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.